Well, hi, hi, hi there, my little droogies. Um, seriously, though, it's a pleasure to be here with you today to speak about one of my favorite films, A Clockwork Orange. It's a film that literally uh, changed my life when I saw it for the first time in college. At that time, it opened my eyes to some of the possibilities of cinematic art that I hadn't fully considered before, even though I was already interested in film in a serious way, but this movie really uh, blew my mind and it continues to do so. And so I can trace my career in film studies back to that moment uh, of seeing this film for the first time in college, uh, among other things. Today we're gonna be talking about the spectacle of violence in A Clockwork Orange. And what better place to start than the costume of our friend and humble narrator, Alex DeLarge, played by the incomparable Malcolm McDowell in the film. Uh, now, Alex uh, is a fascinating figure as a film protagonist because he really is such a nasty, nasty person in, in terms of the the horrible acts of violence, the really reprehensible things that he does to his victims in the film. And yet, the film uh, invites us, I would say even encourages us to identify with Alex. He is, after all, the main character of the film. He is the narrator of the film. We have this repeated voiceover narration by Alex, constantly referring to us as his friends and we begin to feel some empathy towards him despite the horrific nature of some of his acts. Alex's humanity, furthermore, is revealed to us through his love of art, specifically the music of Beethoven. And so we see that human side of Alex, and this is crucial to the drama of what the film is, is trying to achieve and some of the, the philosophical aspects of the film, which we'll get into. This relationship between violence and art runs throughout the film, and I want to come back to that in just a couple of minutes, but it's related to the overall moral dimension of the film, which is made fairly explicit in the film, this moral quandary about the, the nature of good and evil. The fact that you can't really eliminate evil, because if you do, then you eliminate good. I mean, logically speaking, uh, you can't have the concept of moral goodness without at least the possibility of the existence of evil. Because the very term good implies a value judgment. It doesn't make any sense to praise or admire someone for being good if there is no possibility of being otherwise. So good and evil really are two sides of the same coin. And as much as we might like to fantasize about the elimination of evil from the world, it's just not possible, logically speaking. That's a pretty overt theme of the film. It is uh, spoken by one of the characters, the, the prison chaplain, in the scene after Alex has gone through the treatment. The chaplain raises this objection about moral choice. What about this question of choice? The boy has no real choice, has he? Uh, he may have ceased to be an evildoer, but he has also ceased to be a man. And so this is one of the fairly overt philosophical themes of the film and the novel, the Anthony Burgess novel on which the film is based. So we see good and evil as two sides of the same coin. Now back to this comparison or the conflation of art and violence in the film. 
we might also think of art and violence and their relationship. And I want to quote uh, film scholar Vivian Sobchak, who wrote uh, that the film reminds us that art and violence are two sides of the same coin. Uh, she suggests that both uh, come from that antisocial urge towards self-definition, that both are expressions of the individual, egotistic, vital, and non-institutionalized man. Now, by non-institutionalized, she means not only not imprisoned, as Alex is institutionalized in the film, but someone who has not given over one's humanity to the system entirely. So I think that's what she means by non-institutionalized man. So art and criminality, art and violence are both coming from that same impulse to express one's individuality and explore one's individuality sort of against the demands of a system that wants to contain that individuality. So this film, A Clockwork Orange, offers art as violence or violence as art. One of the characteristics of the visual style of the film is the very shocking and often disturbing nature of what we're seeing. I mean, just the, these costumes are rather shocking immediately. I mean, we just immediately have that response, unexpected, uh, somewhat disturbing. If anybody can see into the room here, if not, please go in here later and look at these magnificent mannequins. They have the same kind of effect. They are immediately shocking and immediately disturbing. And I think that's for a couple of reasons. They're unnerving, first of all, because they tap into what Sigmund Freud identified as the uncanny. Like any sort of doll or puppet or mask, they are at once familiar and strange. They are human in form, yet they're obviously not human. And so there's something just immediately disturbing and unsettling about that. The mannequins are also disturbing because they very obviously call up the idea of the objectification of the female body and the sort of subjection of the female body. Incidentally, I meant to mention the artist, Liz Moore, who created these mannequins and also created the Star Child figure. It's just iconic images that we associate with this film, but, but immediately disturbing for those reasons. Now, this objectification of women that we find in A Clockwork Orange, I think, has drawn a lot of criticism, and fairly so. But I want to be clear that, that Kubrick was not trying to objectify women with this film. He means for us to be disturbed by these figures. And similarly, the violence that occurs against the women in this film, and it's not only women, but it, it, is, it is particularly disturbing when we encounter the violent attacks against women and others in the film. Now, some critics, including the, the prominent New Yorker critic Pauline Kael, have criticized this film for glorifying violence or reveling in violence, suggesting that we're somehow supposed to enjoy these scenes. And I don't think that's true at all. I think we're supposed to be horrified and, and extremely disturbed by the scenes of violence in this film. And I am, every time I see the film, I wish I could just run out of the room during the attack on the writer and his wife. Now, that particular scene is not very explicit in its violence. It's not very graphic, especially by today's standards. But the effect 
is still there. I mean, we really feel the impact of that violence. And I think one of the reasons that we feel that is because of what uh, another film scholar, James Naramore, has identified as an aesthetic of the grotesque that is running throughout Kubrick's work. That is the combination of competing emotions that we don't normally find together, and so, sort of clashing emotions put together in the same situation. So if you've seen The Shining, think about the moment when Jack is hacking his way through the bathroom door trying to kill his wife and son. And as soon as he gets through his face through the door, he says, here's Johnny, and it's a joke in the middle of this most horrifying scene of the film. It's the most horrifying scene you can imagine, a father and husband trying to kill his child and wife. You don't get more horrific than that, and Kubrick throws a joke in there. So this is what uh, Naramore means by the grotesque, the conflation of competing emotions. That's one of the reasons the attack on the writer and his wife is so effective. It's employing that aesthetic of the grotesque. The costumes themselves are grotesque, the, with the sexual masks, the ironic use of white, which normally uh, connotes purity or innocence. That combined with the performance of the song Singing in the Rain, that against the violence of the scene. The kind of childlike interaction between Alex and Dim as they're attacking so all of these emotions don't really fit together, and I think that clash of emotions in the scene makes it a lot more disturbing for us. So we don't need to see a graphic representation of the rape. We feel the violence because of the visual style of the film. So we, we do have this kind of stylization of violence throughout the film. Kubrick, in an interview in the 1970s, talked about uh, the, the, uh, many of the violent scenes, many of the attacks, many of the fights, having a kind of choreography, and he likened them to a kind of dance, not really a formal dance, but if you think about the scene early on in the derelict casino where Billy Boy and his gang are about to rape this young woman and Alex and his droogs break in and interrupt those proceedings. This is set in a theater. It's, it, it's happening on a stage. There's a proscenium arch there. So Kubrick is emphasizing the performative quality, the stylization of the violence. And once the fight begins, it, most of it is in slow motion. You see the chains sort of going around and the kicking. And it, it really looks like a kind of dance, especially when we see it in slow motion. There's also the scene where Alex is walking along the side of the water and he attacks his three droogs. That also is shown in slow motion. Beautiful arcs of motion as Dim goes over into the water. It's just a beautifully choreographed scene. So we have this stylization of violence throughout the film and also a kind of theatricality running throughout the film. This comes up again and again, the performance of Alex after his cure. This is also done on a stage and his collaborators, whom he has never met, he doesn't even realize he's part of a performance, but the others take a bow at the end of their little performance there. There's a spotlight on him. I mean, it is a theatrical performance. There's an audience there. So throughout the film, Kubrick is reminding us of the theatricality, the performative nature of the violence that we're seeing. We also see a heavy emphasis on paintings, and many of the paintings in the film are violent in nature. Think about all the paintings in the cat lady's apartment, 
And in fact, in many of those paintings, or at least in some of them, we see representations of some of the violence that we've seen earlier in the film. And I think Kubrick is asking us to think about our different responses to seeing something in a painting as opposed to seeing it depicted in a film. I don't think we're nearly as disturbed by the paintings that we see as we are by the rape scene that we see with the writer and his wife. So I think Kubrick is inviting us to think about our position as viewers and how we respond to the film as viewers. And uh, this is especially apparent in the scene of Alex's treatment where he's strapped into a chair and forced to watch these scenes of violence and sexuality as he's given the drug and, and having these physical responses. And there's that wonderful line where Alex says, I could not get out of the line of fire of this picture. In a way, Alex is a surrogate for us. Uh, Alex is experiencing what we are experiencing with this film. We are meant to be sickened and revolted by the violence that we see. And I think Kubrick doesn't really let up from that uh, so that we, we understand how evil and repellent Alex is. And he has to be that bad in order for the moral dimension of the film to work. Like this is the worst possible guy we can imagine and yet we still don't want him to be stripped of his humanity in the name of some kind of law and order or in the name of eradicating evil. So many, many people have talked about this moral dimension of the film, but I don't hear quite so many people talk about the power relationships in the film. Kubrick is interested in many of his films in this question of power and power relationships. And if you think about it, really, Alex comes up against several different institutions in the course of the film, represented by different characters. So his parents represent the institution of the family, uh, Mr. Deltoid represents, in a way, this in the institution of uh, schools. We have the government represented by all, everybody associated with the prison, but also by the government minister. We have the institution of religion, represented by the prison chaplain. And all of these institutions really fail Alex. Uh, none of them seem to be interested in making him a better person. Rather, they're all interested in getting him under control, controlling his behavior. Even the prison chaplain, who I think is the most sympathetic of all of these people, even he is mainly interested in controlling the members of his congregation. And there's, a, I think, a hilarious line in the film where he's preaching and he gets frustrated because everybody is talking and making noise, and he says something like, don't you laugh, damn you, don't you laugh. And so here's a minister saying, damn you, to his congregation That's because they won't be controlled. And I think this is really Alex's big crime in the world of the film. He will not be controlled. He is natural man in the beginning of this film, operating on his own, uh, you know, outside the control of the system. And that's why he's a problem for this society. It's not about morality because none of those people, you know, Alex's victims even, are all too ready to victimize him in the end of the film. They all become victimizers themselves. So are they necessarily good? Not, yeah, I don't think so. So 
I think the film is trying to say something else beyond this question of good versus evil, and it, it has to do with power relationships. And this brings up another concern of Kubrick's, and that is the necessity for us to watch out for the return of fascism. And I have a quote from Kubrick. He warned against what he called the new psychedelic fascism, the eye-popping, multimedia, quadrasonic, drug-oriented conditioning of human beings by other human beings. Uh, but beyond that, I think he's just warning us against the idea that we have to somehow surrender our humanity completely over to a system. And by the end of the film, Alex figures out a way to negotiate with the system. He gets his humanity back, but he sort of has to make a deal with the devil in a way. He, he makes this deal with the government minister that he'll go along with their propaganda and they'll leave him alone. So they don't really care that he's gonna go back to his violent ways as long as he is under their supervision and their control. I wanna get back to this idea just to close on this, uh, this image of Alex strapped in the chair, being forced to watch uh, the, these violent images and that, that line of his that I could not get out of the line of fire of this picture. Well, similarly, I think Kubrick doesn't let us off the hook either. He will not let us out of the line of fire of this picture, which forces us, I think, to confront some philosophical and maybe aesthetic issues that we might not be all that comfortable asking ourselves.